Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. So before we get to today's episode, just going to run you through the shill that Five Elements Coaching Incorporated, and that's obviously our corporate overlords are making us say this. But again, you will be supporting us, the actual proletariat of Five Elements Coaching, which is Coach Sam and I, (laughs) if you sign up for online coaching. So if you're craving the support and guidance that you've been looking for with your fitness journey, online coaching is a great service that we are currently offering. Whether you have body composition related goals or you just want to become more confident in the gym, get better at strength training, get stronger build some new goals and get some support. We are offering that now and you can apply for that and get a free consultation with the link in the description of this video as well. The video podcast. Yeah. This is a podcast on a video. (laughs) Um, As well, if you sign up for our newsletter, you will receive a weekly email from us, which is some of our highest quality content. We're restructuring it. So right now it's every Friday we're sending out an email and it's going to be between either Sam and I. Sam will be talking more mindset. I'll be talking more science kind of plays off of the evidence-based fitness, empathy-based coaching model that we base our business off of. And then again, if you share, leave a review and share this podcast with anyone you think would help, it would gratefully help us grow because it's one of the best ways. And we love to hear what your thoughts are on the podcast and hear from you guys. So without other way, let's get to today's podcast. Let's do it. So what are we talking about today, Sammy B? We are actually going to dig into some non-tracking eating behaviors that can help you if you are in a position where you either A, are kind of sick of tracking, or perhaps you don't have such a good relationship with it because that too, you know, can lead to some obsessive tendencies and can prey on our minds in Mm -hmm. a negative way. There are tons of reasons why people don't track. People are obsessed with tracking. It's become very common on social media and the internet. And Sam and I are no strangers to it. We've done it. We're not currently doing it. I know I'm not. I don't think Sam is either. And it can be a very useful strategy. But I think one of the issues is some folks tend to think that it's a forever strategy. And there are some people that maybe for the long term, they'll benefit from it. But on average, it's probably not going to be something you need to do forever. There's reasons to do it. There's reasons not to do it. But if you are in the camp right now, now where you're like, I don't want to track everything, but I do want to improve my eating behaviors and manage my energy intake or manage my body weight. There are some alternative strategies that you can apply that don't actually involve tracking calories directly. And that's what we want to talk about today. One thing I do want to caveat is that tracking is not always for people who are looking to lose weight. I actually use tracking historically as a way to make sure that I'm eating enough because Mm -hmm. I have a tendency not to do that. And there are plenty of people who fall into that category too. There are plenty of people who actually track at maintenance, you know, to keep themselves feeling like they're on track or that they're reaching their goals or that they're not either under or overeating. Like there are plenty of circumstances and reasons as to why you would track. And there are also plenty of circumstances and reasons as to why you wouldn't. Yeah, totally. And as someone who's struggled with their weight and energy intake and done so many diets throughout my life, what you just said there could have pissed me off a long time ago. Yeah. I'm like, how dare you complain about how hard it is to eat enough until I actually went through a period where I intentionally tried to be in a surplus consistently. Yeah. And if you're saying, oh, I could do that forever, I'm telling you, if you're someone who has been in the throes of diet culture, you're used to being hungry. And if you're used to being hungry, overeating sounds great. Mm -hmm. But wait till three weeks straight of being in a surplus. Three months straight. Three months straight. Oh, God. And it's tiring. And you're trying to hit certain macro targets, high protein, trying to eat some more minimally processed foods and going above. You'll be like, oh, my God, being overstuffed every day is potentially as miserable as being hungry every day. Day. And that was a lesson I learned where I was like, oh, wow, there's there is a downside to overeating every day, too, yeah. from a discomfort perspective. And as someone who always was hungry and therefore thought I could eat everything and had some issues with regulating my energy intake, experiencing that was definitely eye opening. It's so strange yeah. to be on either side of that equation. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. For sure. But before we get into this wonderful topic, it's time for Roses and Thorns. 
ones. We've run the data. Apparently this is y'all's favorite I know. segment, which we're about. We love roses and thorns. We thought they were too much, but all the analytics tell us I know. that the listeners, you, the listener, Yo. love this shit. What you don't know is that on the back end, I can see listener retention. And that means that I notice when our listenership starts to slowly fade off and drop off. And yeah, we've been noticing a trend that apparently you guys just want to hear us shoot the shit. <laughs> Instead of being educated on any particular topic, which is what we thought we had to do to provide value. But turns out you just want to hear us vent about the chaos that is our lives. I've always wanted to be a talking head. Oh my God. Now I'm just a talking head, apparently. I love that for you. Yeah. I'm going to (laughs) stop reading research and just talk more shit and just watch this potty just blow up. Okay, but wait, you go first. Okay. (laughs) Go, go. (laughs) So my rose is... It's actually not as heavy as it normally is. So if you like the heavy ones, I'm sorry to disappoint. I've been working on my mindfulness quite a bit. In a big way. Interestingly, my sibling runs a sociology journal and they sent me an article to read kind of about the greenwashing of the fitness space. And or if you don't know what that means, in some ways, it's like when people sell wellness or they'll try to capitalize on it Mm -hmm. and make the consumer feel good for their purchases, Mm -hmm. even though the the product is actually kind of detrimental or you're co-opting a space, right? Or they're putting the onus of self-care in an exploitative culture and society on you, the individual, and not on fixing a system that is literally draining the soul and life force of us all. Yeah, we should just do a podcast (laughs) on that. Um, Oh my God. So within that, they sent me an article And in the article, there was a great term that I realized I fall for, and that was what researchers call McMindfulness. And that is mindfulness being co-opted more in a capitalist structure of, we want you to be more mindful so that you can be more productive and get more work done. Mm -hmm. And that is inherently bastardizing what the intent of mindfulness is in the tradition of the Buddhist practice. So that article was really eye-opening to me, where I was like, wow, I, I use Headspace, I meditate, I do mindfulness so that I can be more productive. Yeah. So I've been listening to some... Um, Buddhist work by Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh, who is one of Sam's favorites and was suggested me from someone else that I like. So I was like, you know what? This is a good, good place to start. And he routinely talks about washing the dishes. He's obsessed with it. And normally we're like, we wash the dishes to get to, to do the dishes. Mm-hmm. Like we wash it to get it done, do something else. And if you operate with that mindset, you're inherently not living a mindful life. Yeah. He's like, the reason we wash the dishes is to wash the dishes. Mm-hmm. And that made me think about mindfulness where it's like, I used to think in the mindfulness sense, I practice mindfulness to be more productive. But then I'm thinking about a different task while being mindful, which inherently is not mindful. Yeah. When in reality, you want to practice mindfulness to be more mindful and to be present in the moment. So I realized I wasn't doing that. So been going down the rabbit holes, been meditating a lot more and practicing it in a different lens Mm -hmm. and been listening and reading more Buddhist work. And I was like, this is kind of dope. So I'm feeling it. And the rose was that I've been just breathing a lot. Sam's like, oh God, we had had a heated discussion the other day and she's like, I feel like I'm arguing with a balloon right now. I can't deal with it. (laughs) Like he's just sitting there and with every word I say, he's just. (sighs) (laughs) And I'm like, stop breathing at me, man. It's hostile. It's because I'm so reactive. Yeah. And my understanding of physiology actually helps me here. Yeah. Because I do understand what happens when you get a dose of epinephrine, adrenaline, cortisol into your bloodstream. Oh, yeah. It can change these substrates that your body's using for energy, increases your heart rate. It gets you kind of ready to handle stress. Gets you fired up. Yeah. And as I've been observing my mindfulness more and breathing, we'll be having a discussion and I actually can start to feel my heart pick up its pace. Yeah. I start to feel on edge. I get a defensive posture. and I. I've been witnessing that. And one of the key components of like Buddhism or like practicing mindfulness is Mm -hmm. to observe without judgment. So I've been observing that without judgment, but my assessment of it is I'm very defensive and I'm very ready to engage in like discussions in an aggressive manner. And I also like the sport of debate. So that's kind of a a part of this too. But I used (laughs) to like study debating and like watch people debate and try to break down what tactics they're using because it's very interesting to me. But I get excited and I get like, I get that posture and I was like, wow, I'm so ready for this all the time. You look like an animal who was backed into a corner. Yeah. It's like this fight or flight. I am here to like defend my life and my survival depends yeah. on it. And like you get almost a feral energy yeah. to you. It's one of the reasons I'm, I'm really skilled off the cuff. Yeah, for right? sure. And it's one of the reasons I think I'm good at podcasting too. Yeah. My, the way I perform on the podcast always exceeds my notes. Oh, for sure. I'll prepare and be like, dude, I, I didn't even think of that. And I don't yeah. know why I get in a flow state. So 
observing my mindfulness and practicing it has been super helpful in being like, wow, you have more control over mm-hmm. your behavior and this is changeable, but also the thorn is, wow, I have been so not mindful for so long and so reactive as a response to it. And something one of my therapists said mm-hmm. a while ago was like, and this is an idea I struggled with, I wanted to change my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And they said, and in my understanding of psychology too, is you have no control over your thoughts. Mm-hmm. They come to you. And mm-hmm. this is a core tenet in practicing mindfulness too. But you do get a choice and you get a sense of agency of what you do with those thoughts. Yes. You don't have to act on them and you don't have to let them run your life. You can observe them and take pause and then choose what to do. But if you're in that reactive, reflexive state, it's really hard to do that. And practicing mindfulness is one strategy to do that. So the rose and thorn live in the same template here around mindfulness of how unmindful I have been analyzing that, Mm -hmm. but also seeing potential for how mindful I could be and the effects that it could have. And not about productivity, but just about having a state of inner peace, which is something I've never strived towards. I've always been like, I want to be happy. And I've changed that dialogue to I want to have peace. Yes. Peace is a lot more realistic and I think a lot more healthy than always being happy. And I said this to you the Mm -hmm. other day. If you think about it from a macro perspective, no one's like, we want to have a a happy country or a happy Mm -hmm. state. The goal is we want to have a peaceful state, a peaceful country, a peaceful family. I want to have that state of inner peace. Yeah. And I mean, even if I just use the example that you gave where, you know, you can't control the thoughts that come into your head, right? You hear the thought, you don't like it. You're not ever going to get to a place where that thought brings you joy or contentedness. But in being able to bear witness to the thought instead of a polarized charge that comes from it and this is positive or negative you just let it come and let it go yeah you actually just get to bear witness to it you just get to experience the thought as a passing thought and you can be at peace with it after that it's not about being positive or negative or happy or sad it's just about acceptance like 100%. it happened it was there and now it's gone yeah Accept and observe without judgment. Yeah. yeah. That's actually kind That's of empowering, beautiful. especially if you're someone, if you're listening to this and you find that ugly thoughts come into your brain and you just want them to go away. Yeah. I think every human probably has that on some level, thoughts that they might feel ashamed of. Yeah. It's been liberating over the last few years. This is an idea I've been aware of for a few years, but like that you have no control over them, but you do have agency in your response to them. Mm-hmm. And observing without judgment is one way to liberate the sense of shame you might get mm-hmm. from thoughts that you are not too comfortable with that enter your brain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our brains are chaos. Total chaos. We intake so much information on a daily basis. And just think about the shows you watch, the ideas that you play with when you read a book or when you scroll social media, like you're getting a hit of information from a broad variety of topics. And so it makes sense that our brains are a little bit more chaotic. We're not all hyper fixated on one particular subject and topic. We are, you know, our hands are in a bunch of pots all the time so it can feel very chaotic yeah for sure and there's no control over that definitely not what about you sammy oh god okay so (laughs) thorn i'm gonna start negative and flip it okay it's amazing how our therapists can act as mirrors to us And I love that my therapist does this for me. I love that they act as a mirror to my own behavior and that they are not the type of therapist to just pat me on the back and tell me I'm a good girl and a victim. They're always like, what about you? And how did you impact this scenario? And so recently, my therapist made it abundantly clear to me, just via mirroring me, that I operate with a very low level of self-worth. And, you know, the way in which that's affected my life and impacted me across a lifespan up until now, it's been really challenging for me to deal with because I, I'm i a nurturing person, I'm a giving person, I'm a kind person. And it's very easy for me to sort of give too much and the human giver syndrome kind of vibe. And within that, I operate from a place as if I almost don't have value or worth because I'm like, here, take it all, go for it. Whatever you need, I'll be whatever that is. 100%. So my thorn is really, in acknowledging the low level of self-worth that I operate with and in the porousness of my boundaries and how hard that is to live with and to face and acknowledge and work on because wow, is it challenging to operate from a place of self-worth when you've spent a lifetime doing the opposite. Um, I'm exhausted. I've been, and I quote, ripping off band-aids lately. Yeah, you've been ripping them off. Yeah, I'm really trying to deal with all the little areas and ways in which I compromise my sense of self. And it's so hard 
to reorient and pivot your psyche and to not, you know, bleeding yourself out for people all the time yeah. and to operate with a level of self-worth. Like I know who I am. I got me super challenging. It's been exhausting. My nervous system is so tired just yeah. from having a boundary. It's, it's oh, it, wild. Whenever I set a boundary, I go to bed. Oh my I, it just, God. It puts me to bed. Um, I lose a night. It's just I like, know. dude, you're so tired now. It's wild how exhausting it is to really set a boundary. I lost an afternoon. I lost an Literally. afternoon. <laughs> like, I said no and lost the afternoon. I know. It's a, it's fascinating to me. <laughs> it's so sad. Um, yeah, like I actually feel like, you know, in this phase of life, where I'm ripping off all the band-aids it's almost like I've been running on adrenaline and cortisol just being like okay fuck it I'm gonna I'm gonna fix all the things I'm gonna have self-worth I'm gonna literally have all the boundaries I can do this and I've just been I've been very brave about it but almost in a very nonchalant way as if there would be no blowback from it and the blowback is that nervous system fatigue that I'm low-key suffering with all the time. You had like adolescent rage energy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like I'm rebelling against yeah. all the confines and all the constructs. Oh God, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. 100%. But Rose, also a Rose from therapy and not even recent therapy, from two-year-old therapy. It's something that my therapist said to me two years ago and it finally landed recently. And that sounds insane, but like I carry their words in my mind because they have a notable impact on the way that I view the world. I really trust them. And they made a comment along the lines of, your issues are not really with yourself. Your issues are relational, which means that you need to be in relation to others yeah. in order to actually heal. And it wasn't until, you know, the past few months where I've been going through a lot um, under the umbrella of neurodivergence. There's yeah. been a lot of things and yeah. a lot of stuff. And I'll share that in time when I feel ready. But for the interim, in that crux, I have been in community with people who operate like I do, who think like I do. And, you know, I'm reading all of their stories because often our stories, especially when you're somebody who's on the margins, be that anybody queer or non-binary or a woman or a person of color, we're all kind of omitted from research. True. We're all kind of left to learn from the stories that we share with each other. And there's so much healing and acceptance and power and being in community with people who are all just sharing their stories and bearing witness to each other's stories and the healing that comes from being in community with others is one of the most beautiful experiences it is the most healing honestly yeah it's truly profound and okay. i can't believe that that's something that i've you know i want to heal in isolation was always my vibe and now i'm like the only way we heal is really in community with each other yeah i love it I've been proud of you. You've been ripping off band-aids yeah. for sure. Weird phase of life. It's been a, a especially <laughs> strange phase of life. What a time to be alive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So tracking. Tracking. Not tracking. Okay. So the inspiration for this episode was to address a gap we find within the fitness space around managing energy intake, improving nutritional habits that does not involve directly tracking calories. So if you want to track calories, that's totally fine. This is not an anti-tracking calories segment. It's more about offering some strategies for folks who don't want to track or for kind of like practical reasons can't because mm -hmm. not everyone can. And that's been an issue I've run into with many clients yeah. because I, I work with women historically who might have landed somewhere on the disordered eating spectrum. And for them, I know that tracking can be very triggering. It yes. can lead to sort of a psychological manifestation of obsessive tendencies. And that is something that I'm so cognizant of and so aware of that I don't want to encourage a behavior that's going to lead somebody to feeling not okay mm -hmm. in their body or in their practice. So there are plenty of reasons why you wouldn't track. That was a great one that you mentioned. But another one was if you're sharing a lot of meals and there's a lot of meals that you're having that you don't have control over, True. tracking errors is going to be much larger for sure and it can become futile like i have had clients who are like i'm eating like 1300 calories a day and i'm like it's very unlikely like even if you were to track 
meticulously, it's probably more like dietitians. I believe there's some research where like trained dietitians get like 15 to 20% off of like what they're actually intaking. And those are skilled people with monitoring food. We as humans tend to be shit at it. And there's inherent tracking error. There's, there's error in any data we collect. So the less control you have over your food environment, typically the more error there's going to be. And that can leave you feeling so disempowered because you're like, I'm tracking, but it's like, you might have a three to 500 calorie error on a meal due to oil in it, serving sizes, eyeballing it compared to weighing it, all of those things. So if that's you, these behaviors and strategies are probably more helpful than just being like, you just got to track everything that goes in your body. I would also like to mention that this is especially pertinent to honestly, people of color or people from diverse backgrounds, because often we live in connection to the people we love and that can be family or chosen family, whatever it might be. But when you come from a different background or ethnicity, you are often not just eating chicken, rice and broccoli, which means that tracking something sort of with a lot of spices, there's oil in it and you don't make it in single portion sizes. You make it in a big pot or you make it in a crock pot. It becomes harder and harder to be like, well, my coach said I need to eat, you know, 1500 calories and I have no idea what my mom put in that recipe. And I can't ask her to weigh out every individual ingredient and then portion it out so that I have a specific serving size that's never going to happen. So in working with people with diverse backgrounds, you have to have a flexibility to your approach. 100%. That was a good example because if especially if you come from a more ethnic background and your cuisine that you eat in your home is within that ethnic kind of variety of foods and it's not as much like, I don't even know what Canadian food is, but it's not as like... Chicken, rice, and broccoli, the bodybuilder The typical foods here. For example, my family's Goan, which is a state in India, so we eat Goan food. And our the foods we make when we have our family events, Sam's seen them like, it's a whole potluck vibe. I am technically and ethnically Goan and Indian, but I wasn't raised in a Goan household. Mm -hmm. I'm biracial, so we lived in a different city. We didn't eat Goan food. I'm not used to those foods. So if I were to try to track, that's a nightmare. If I told my grandma, like say my grandma hired a coach and they were totally ignorant to the culture of Goan food. And you're like, you're just only gonna eat 1500 calories. And if you don't, this is a problem. It could be like a real issue, right? So within that, another strategy is like portion control, which is not a new concept. and other eating behaviors that don't directly involve tracking, which is also not a new concept, but an alternative concept if tracking is just not feasible for you. Definitely. So we're going to talk about a couple of topics. We're going to do very brief research rundowns, and it's not going to be an in-depth one. Yeah. But we'll cover some very basic stuff, and we'll go from there. So I think the first one I want to talk about, and I've talked about it before. I've written about it. It's a favorite strategy of mine. It also ties in with my rows of mindfulness, but it's eating at a slower pace. And there's a plethora of research on this topic. It all tends to be positive to neutral in terms of managing energy intake. Um, So I wanted to start with kind of going over a brief systematic review and meta-analyses, which is kind of like a compilement of a bunch of different studies that fit an inclusion criteria within a research frame, as opposed to just cherry picking one study. Mm -hmm. Um, So within that, there was a, a small to medium effect in reducing energy intake using a variety of different strategies. So there was a lot of variance in the data and it doesn't always reveal itself to reducing total energy intake. Sometimes you'll just eat for longer but you'll eat the same amount, but it tends to be neutral or positive, as I had mentioned, and the averages tended to favor in reducing energy intake to a statistically significant, but on a term of practicality, a small to medium effect size. So not massive, not life-changing, but it's there. And this is also a free thing you can do, which is probably the reason why I like it the most. And it's portable. You can take it anywhere there. So some of the strategies that were involved were verbally being told to chew slowly and take your time, which we can all do. Uh, Manipulating food form. This was really interesting. So hard texture versus like soft and easy texture. Yes. If it's a harder textured food, it tends to also take longer to eat. It takes more effort to chew and break down. We talked about this last episode with the why weight loss is harder for some than others. Like mouthfeel and food texture can make a difference on your consumption of a food. Think of like highly processed foods that just melt in your mouth and are super easy to overeat compared to like fibrous, hard textured foods. May I caveat this? Caveat it. So I see this a lot with smoothies because people think that a smoothie is the pinnacle of health. And though, yeah, for sure, you can get greens in it and some fruit like fiber whatever and throw in your protein that's awesome but you've now taken fibrous food and blended it in your blender and now it's a drinkable liquid instead of a chewable solid yeah and thus when you're consuming it you don't really have to go through the process of chewing slowly mindfully and then swallowing your food and really masticating it so 
for a lot of people, smoothies can actually be kind of problematic because it doesn't have a tendency to give the same fullness cue for everyone across the board. Some yeah. people do really well with smoothies, but some people don't because the blender is a version of like pre-digestion for that meal. Yeah, that will make a dent in that. And also one thing to bring up there is one of the methods that they'll use in research is like calories eaten per minute. And if you were to use a smoothie versus like a very thick smoothie bowl, so say the difference only changed was water content, so mm -hmm. the calories and energies were the exact same, but one was a thick smoothie bowl and one was a smoothie, you'd be able to consume more calories per minute. And since we know that the filling up of your stomach and chewing process, all that stuff over time is going to signal to your brain, hey, there's food coming in. We don't need to release as many hormones that tell you to eat more. That's going to impact that. But if you're just slamming back and drinking calories, it can be quite hard to manage them. Obviously, you can still manage your intake while drinking calories. And if that works for you, that's totally fine. But if you notice it's something that makes you not as full and it's harder to kind of regulate, then eating more hard textured or avoiding a lot of drinkable calories tends to be an advisable strategy. Other ones were weird and not very practical, like computerized feedback, where a computer would tell the subject to slow down uh, their eating rate. We're not going to use that. And then having different food deliveries. This was interesting. There was like spoon versus straw, which mm -hmm. kind of touches on that Chopsticks. too. Chopsticks are a great example, yeah. um, where if you ever eat with chopsticks, it tends to take longer than if you have a big spoon where you can shovel food in. So within that, slowing down your eating pace is something you can do everywhere if you have the time. It mm -hmm. can aid in practicing mindfulness and awareness cues, which is kind of like there's a plurality to the effect that it can have because it can go hand in hand with just trying to be more mindful. So what I would say is like some tips are schedule time to eat when possible. And this might only be one meal per day where it's possible. Your breakfast and lunch might be hectic and you're like, you know what, dinner, I can practice this. That's better than practicing it never. Setting a timer if you struggle with pace and then kind of setting it and like say it takes five minutes. You're like, you know what, 20 would be awesome, but that's a massive stretch. I want to start to do set meals at eight minutes. That's my goal. And you're just kind of similar to progressive overload in the gym. You're slowly progressing over time by slowing it down. You can put utensils down between bites. Consider counting ju chews. Don't count juice. Consider counting chews <laughs> if you find that you eat very fast. And how do you always get in trouble? <laughs> really? Um, and perhaps start with a mindful practice. Um, eating with smaller utensils could potentially help too. And if there's anything you want to add to that, Sam. I'd say eating undistracted is a really great place to start too. Yeah. Like often if you eat in front of the TV, you're focused on what you're watching. You're not focused <laughs> on your chewing and how many bites you've taken. Like there's no mindfulness available in those moments because you are literally paying attention to something other than the feeling of the food in your mouth and the feeling of the food in your body. And yeah, just for reference, that came from a review by Robinson and colleagues in 2014. So about seven years, eight years old, but not too old of data. The second one I wanted to talk about was friction in the way of mindless snacking. This was something that I came across several times, but in a paper by Pullman and colleagues in 2013, they were analyzing evidence-based behaviors for reducing food consumption or managing food consumption amongst three different cohorts from either like quote-unquote normal in the BMI scale all the way up to quote-unquote obese in the BMI scale. And they were looking for like what behaviors were used the most amongst these cohorts. Um, and two of the ones that came up as the most commonly used, which was interesting, related around this topic. And one of them was to store tempting foods such as sweets and candies, well-packaged, out of sight and out of reach, which is inherently putting friction in between you yes. and making that decision. Our current food environment for a lot of folks is one where those foods tend to be hyper available. And similar to like, if you think about your phone, if your phone's on the table in front of you, you can almost reflexively just grab it and be on it. Yeah. But if it's like, I put my phone sometimes in a phone jail and I noticed I actually have a mini jail and I'll lock it up. And I notice when I do that, I tend to grab it less. Similar where if like there's a bowl of chips on the table, you're either gonna fight the urge to not eat it or you're gonna put your hand in it. But if it's not even on the table, it might not even cross your mind. So that's another one. And then the second one they mentioned was don't store tempting foods in several places such as glove compartment of your car and the desk drawer at yes. work. Keep these places snack free. So if you keep spaces that you occupy a lot and don't want to be eating in mindlessly, snack free tends to be quite helpful and a commonly used strategy amongst people successfully like reducing or managing their energy intake. Definitely. Or also, it can be helpful to put out snacks that are more in alignment with your goals. 100%. If you have to push those out of the way to get to like yeah. your less nutritious snacks, that's generally a good strategy. You know what I mean? It's very simple. For people, I happen to really like baby carrots. So yeah. if I just left a bowl of baby carrots available to me the moment I open the fridge, easy peasy. I can snack on those baby carrots all damn day. Yeah. But if it's like a bowl of M&Ms, here we go. Well, think about those two examples. If you were to mindlessly eat baby carrots versus M&Ms and Very you caught good. yourself doing it 
for three in three minutes in, the amount of energy you would consume from the baby carrots mindlessly right. in three minutes compared to M&Ms could be in the range of like five to 800 calories different. I just pulled that out of my ass, but because of you the caloric density, of you can eat a lot of calories from like little M&Ms in three minutes than opposed to like baby carrots that are fibrous, full of water, right. not calorically dense. So foods that are less calorically dense, more nutritious, tend to be better ones to make abundantly available if that's possible. And if you don't want to have any available, keeping them in places where there's more friction to grab them is a highly advisable strategy. A hundred percent. And there are people who definitely take this very far, like when they're in contest prep mode and they're like putting their food in kind of a food jail the same way that you yeah. use a phone jail. Yeah. I do know that there are people who do that. I'm not going to suggest it, but I don't know. Sometimes it's really hard, especially for parents, because you don't really have the choice as a parent to be like, I'm not going to keep any fun snacks out of the house, right? Yeah. You can't because you want them for your kids' lunches and stuff like that. And for a lot of people, when you're not in a great place in your relationship with food and you feel like you don't have that like willpower, self-control and discipline that you need, just seeing that stuff in the cupboard so easily available and within reach can be very triggering. So it's like learning how to manage that. Yeah, like I've told, I've talked about that mo- chocolate covered matzo story before. Oh yeah. Where it was in the back of our freezer. I literally forgot about it for months. And then... And and then when we were recording a podcast, I brought it up and I was like, yo, we got chocolate covered matzah. And then after the podcast, I ate it. And like I hadn't eaten it for months because I forgot about it. And the reason why I forgot about it is because it literally wasn't visible. Yeah. It was in the back of the freezer behind like frozen mangoes and berries. And that was a pointed choice that yes. I made to yeah. hide it from <laughs> him for this exact reason. Because yeah. I was like, he's not going to have one piece. He's going to go to town. Well, you think you got to think about this. Your brain's always intaking data subconsciously. Yeah. And visual cues are always data. So if you are always seeing a food that's hyper palatable and delicious, and potentially if it's one that soothes you and that you've used to regulate your nervous system or regulate your emotions. 100%. um, And then if you start feeling antsy and stressed and then you visually see that food, there can be a subconscious data driven decision of like, we feel like shit. That food has historically helped. And with a matter of like half a second, you're already there eating it. And the more abundant you make though, that visual stimuli, the more willpower you're going to have to put into it, which sucks because we talked about. That's really funny that you say that because this was a huge problem. I grew up on a street that actually had a McDonald's all the way at the end of it. So every time my mom drove her car, she would inevitably more often than not drive past that McDonald's. And it was always just right there. There's a drive through. She doesn't even need to leave the car. And it was so because it was right there. It was so accessible. And it was so like it's a visual cue. Hey, hit us up. Come get some macas. Yeah. It was so challenging for her to regulate her intake of it. Right. A hundred percent. Like I've, I've explained to you, I grew up in more of a lower socioeconomic area and they tend to correlate with a higher density of fast food options. Yeah. Within like a kilometer radius of my home, I think I named 30. I know. It was wild. It's wild. And from a visually stimulative perspective, I saw it every day, all day. My exposure. There's a lot of research on this actually that I haven't dove into a lot, but a lot of people that I respect talk about it. So I do want to eventually, but the exposure that children receive of these marketing companies like McDonald's ads, Lay's chips ads. I even talked about this where like one of the things that I gained weight off initially as a kid was Lay's chips. And I always thought of Marc Messier saying you can't just have one and I would say it. And my exposure to that commercial was high because honestly I was neglected and I was raised by by television, which a lot of kids that happens for, it tends to happen more in lower socioeconomic areas, especially if parents at single parent household or you're working a lot and you have no nannies or caretaking around. Like for those, I got raised by television and a lot of kids probably had that too. And guess who buys up the ad space on children's television programs? Like foods for kids, fruit roll-ups, happy meals, all that shit. So I was just taking that in all the time. And whenever I had it, it was my favorite meal. It always made me feel really good. So I'm not solely blaming it on that, but my exposure to it was quite high. And those are things I think sometimes we tend to underlook. So if in your own food environment, if you can make that visual stimuli less and make more nutritious foods or keep certain foods snack free, it can probably help with you mitigating making these decisions more often. For sure. And that's such a simple one. 100%. Is there anything else you want to add to that one? No. 
Okay. Um, the next one I want to talk about is obviously this is a no brainer, but I think there's some interesting research going with it is prioritizing minimally processed foods and lean proteins and fibrous foods. And the reason why I say this is as we've talked about, they're generally going to be less calorically dense, more satiating, more nutrient dense and harder to really overeat. You can obviously overeat anything, but mm -hmm. it does tend to be harder to overeat minimally processed fibrous foods, especially that take a lot of chewing and time to actually eat. As we've talked about before, I think a really interesting paper on this, and it wasn't on a huge sample size, but they were actually housed, which is called a metabolic ward study. So they're housed for the whole period and fed everything and monitored everything. It was in 2019 where subjects were housed for two weeks for each trial. And each trial was either exposure to a high ultra processed diet or a high unprocessed diet. And interestingly, they were told, eat as much as you want, go for it, food was available, etc. Mm -hmm. And to no surprise, the ultra processed group, they ate 500 calories more per day than the, on average, there was variance to the data. And this was by Hall and colleagues in 2019 than the minimally processed food diet. But the interesting thing was they ate faster and the hormones that were associated with hunger and satiety, they weren't higher in the group that ate more. So you would expect that if you ate more, you would also be more full, yeah. but they didn't get that same response. Ghrelin and PPY were the two hormones specifically, not that that matters too much, but they ate 500 calories more and they had the macronutrient breakdown and it was pretty much all carbohydrates and fat that were extra, not protein, yeah. and they weren't more satiated, which is why we talk about it's really hard to regulate eating a high amount of ultra processed food because for the same amount of calories or more, you're actually maybe not going to experience the same level of satiety. Honestly, it's like you can't even fathom the calories in certain foods because they they're so easy to eat they're literally easier to chew than fibrous food um they go down so easily right they go down like think water. about mcdonald's yeah think about eating a pizza it's easier yeah than it is to eat like let's say a thousand calories worth of nothing but nutrient dense whole foods it's that's horrible. exhausting the effort of chewing all of that fiber it's a lot more challenging and it's very it's kind of like this inconspicuous like an insidious kind of vibe because you don't realize when you're going out to a meal like even a fancy meal it doesn't have to be hyper palatable highly processed food it can be like a really nice restaurant but they have a tendency to kind of, you know, cook everything in a lot of oil or a lot of butter and they're a little heavy handed with it. Yeah. So you almost don't even realize you're like, I just had this one tiny little steak and this yeah. tiny little potato and this tiny little side dish of veggies. But there's a lot more in there than you realize because it doesn't look like a lot of food, but yet it's calorically dense. Our eyes can't catch up to our stomachs. You know, now we're talking about like no one is overeating and like just stuffing their face with like broccoli or asparagus. Yeah. I mean, you are at a steakhouse. Asparagus at a steakhouse hits oh different. And it's not because they're doing something. It's just buttered usually crazily yeah. buttered and it's delicious and it's like i remember as a kid the first time i had cauliflower i had cauliflower and cheese sauce <clears throat> and i remember i came home and i'd never really had cauliflower in my life and i was like mom you have to buy cauliflower it's delicious it's fire because i thought it came with cheese sauce no. i like the cheese sauce but if she would have bought me brought raw cauliflower I'd be like what is this bullshit right like it was cooked in cheese sauce and hyper delicious because of the cheese sauce Ugh. and the good texture of the cauliflower blended well with it but i thought it was the cauliflower i I think one of my favorite examples of this is the potato because yes. the potato is one of the like highest foods on the satiety index and yet depending on the way in which it's processed it will feel phenomenally different in yeah. your body when you consume it let's say you bake a potato that's a very different experience than eating a bag of chips one is going to make you feel a very different way than the other one is going to be a lot easier to eat than the other one is going to leave you with more of a sense of fullness than the other and if you look at the back of a bag of potato chips it's not like you're just eating potato there's a lot of oil Right. More, of the, more of the calories actually tend to be from fat in potatoes, right? Potato chips and yeah. potatoes don't have fat naturally. Like I know, if anything, there's a very, very marginal amount of sat fat or some sort of fat within oh my the potato. God. It's like no. But we're talking about not even a gram. Like it's yeah. very small. And when you look at the back of a potato chip bag and see the nutrition labels, it's usually around 50-50, But sometimes more of the calories are yeah. actually from fat. But those are invisible grams of calories. Yeah. Like you don't really always see them. Right? And they're light and they're fluffy yeah. and they're so easy to yeah. eat. So it's a good, you just mentioned that, which is great. 
calories and macros don't determine how yeah. delicious a food is always. As Sam just mentioned, the texture and the design of the food make a massive difference. Potatoes and fries are a great example where a perfectly done fry is crispy on the outside and fluffy on the inside, oh, so perfectly salted. It's just an experience, it right? Is. But you can't be like, you can't know that from just looking at the macros. No. Because you get similar macros from other foods, but you're not going to have the same level of palatability if you were to have something else with equal macros because the food feel and everything else makes a difference in the consumption of that food as well. A hundred percent. I love the example of the potato because it's such a manipulated one. Oh, it's one of the highest foods in the satiety index. I know. On its own. On its own. Yeah. It's so interesting to see that like the way a food is processed can... completely change the palatability the outcome your hunger satiety fullness all of it there is so much more that goes into those foods to make them the way that they are than you know a piece of steamed broccoli yeah god but broccoli with cheese sauce now okay so for the last strategy i want to talk about it's meal rhythm and basically all that is is like the rhythm in which you have your meals on a frequent basis most people do eat meals in a regular schedule erratic eating can be something that can get in the way of having a good idea and a good sense of control over your energy intake and food choices and where i got this from was the was a really interesting study from Westenhofer and colleagues, and it was called a lean habit study. It was a pretty popular one where they essentially analyzed the behavior and outcomes of successful weight loss maintainers at three years post weight loss. So they tried to identify if there was anything consistently these folks were doing amongst the actual successful weight loss maintainers. And as we've talked about before, weight loss maintenance is very challenging from a statistical perspective, and it's quite unlikely. And if you've dieted and lost weight, you probably know how challenging it is, or maybe you've experienced the dreadful rebound that a lot of dieters do experience when losing a lot of weight. So what was interesting was like, and this was a small amount of weight loss. So if they lost 5% of their body weight and kept it off for three years, they were considered to be a successful weight loss maintainer. But there was like percentages and odds ratios of an increased likelihood of if there was a behavior of a increased likelihood of success of weight loss maintaining. And one of the highest ones was actually a regular meal rhythm. And it was defined as having regular meals and the avoidance of snacking and unplanned and nibbling and is the second food choice in the habits associated with the group maintaining their weight loss. So it was the second most common behavior. I forget what the first one was, but with that in mind, it just shows how powerful this can be in maintaining weight loss as a kind of a portable habit and a consistent thing you're doing because that's not contingent on tracking. That's contingent on having a regular meal schedule and extra meals and erratic meals and snacks can make it quite challenging for you to stay consistent and compliant with your nutrition strategies because what happens is, is if you have like 200 calorie snack uh, mm-hmm. between lunch and dinner that you don't normally do, it's pretty unlikely you'll naturally and intuitively pull back 200 calories from your dinner, especially if you're in a state of reduced weight where mm-hmm. maybe your hunger is a little bit higher and you're struggling to manage your hunger than if you were at a, at a higher body fat than if you had just lost weight. So those erratic eating behaviors can just make it more challenging, especially in the face of weight loss maintenance. And it's one thing that I think can be really powerful if you're like, I don't want to track I got no space for it, but you can be like, okay, I'll have three square meals per day and like kind of one snack. And then you're at least controlling some variables. So you're like, if things aren't going to plan, so you're gaining weight or you're not losing weight and your goal is to lose weight, you can just look at those variables. What are these meals looking like? You can identify, hey, am I being compliant to it? Or are there extra snacks that are kind of coming in unplanned? If that's the goal, if that's what's happening, you can be like, okay, I'll just adjust that and take those out. Or if your meals are pretty regular and it's not achieving the outcome you want, you don't necessarily have to track them, but you can just modify the portion sizes of them, which is still energy reduction, but not through tracking everything meticulously. So it might be like, okay, I'll reduce the serving size of rice or of any other foods that are like of extra oil or whatever else you want to reduce to reduce Mm -hmm. the energy content of that meal. That's not tracking, but it is a strategy that you can use if that makes sense. This is one that I'm actually really passionate about. I've noticed that the overeating, undereating cycle is often perpetuated by this exact concept. It's like people who feel sort of the tendency to overeat are often the people who kind of don't eat enough during the day. If you're yeah. not eating, do you know what I'm talking about? I it's know like exactly what you mean. It's like you keep forcing yourself to eat these 200 calorie snacks that are either just carbs or just protein or just fat. And so you're never getting satiety cues. You're never yeah. getting that real sense of fullness. So between that and the fact that 
our bodies love rhythm. Like we are still mammals, no matter how disconnected we feel from that or not. We're still just an animal species, realistically. And we love living on a circadian rhythm. We love our biological rhythm. And in eating solid portion sizes, in eating them around the same time each and every day, you increase that sense of regularity and consistency in teaching your body what to anticipate when and why. So if you always eat lunch around noon and one day you have to push off your lunch until 2 p.m., you'll notice around noon that your stomach might start growling or you might start to feel hungry. I find that with clients who have had issues with binge eating in the past, this has been one of the most powerful strategies on the planet because just giving them that regular consistent hit of I'm well fed, I'm nourished, I know that there's food coming, I'm good, I feel full, I feel satisfied. They don't feel that extreme biological urge to reach beyond what they actually needed. So I do find that like it was a common sort of thought I think it, what, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, they eat six small meals a day oh, instead metabolic of metabolic furnace. There we go. And I feel like that actually set people up for total disaster because it's very hard to feel full from, you know, a bunch of 200 calorie snacks rather than sitting down to a decent amount of food at the same time, roughly every day and mindfully eating that meal. Totally different experiences, totally different takeaways from it physiologically. It's night and day. You just touched on something really interesting, and that is the survivorship bias of kind of any intervention or strategy that you want to use where the six meals a day thing probably works well for certain folks. And when it's mass marketed and becomes a fad, everyone tries it, right? And certain folks really succeed on it. And then those are then used as the poster people to why this diet is significantly better. But within the survivorship bias fallacy, Mm -hmm. what often gets underlooked is there's not really as much documentation on the people that it did not succeed with. Yeah. So that's something to navigate within the fitness industry too, Mm -hmm. where some, and if we were to do it, the same thing would apply. If we're like, hey, here's what the five elements coaching model does. And we'd see all the testimonials, but we don't have like a secret system that we're trying to prop up as being unique, right? We're evidence-based fitness empathy-based coaching and we try to make it individual to the person but a lot of fitness is like we have developed this unique system yeah that's better than the rest and then they'll use survivorship bias fallacies of like here's what it will do for you but they're not showing like our success rate is x amount of percent compared to people who sign up they're just going to show you the highlights which is just good business even though it might be a little bit misleading and six meals a day might work really well for some people yeah and it might be really bad for others intermittent fasting might work really well for some people but as someone with a history of binge eating becoming that Mm -hmm. hungry on a daily basis is typically not a good place for me to be a more regular meal structure where i'm constantly feeling satisfied with meals mm-hmm. right not all the time but like three to four meals a day where I'm feeling full mm-hmm. is a lot more rewarding and a lot more conducive to me not feeling the urgency of yeah. rabid hunger that leads to binging yeah and I feel like it almost allows your physiology to relax because there's this sense of it's okay I know that there's more food on, like there's more food coming 100%. like there's a regularity to our lifestyle rather than when you're sort of stuck in that overeating undereating cycle you know, you might really push yourself to adhere to really low calories for five days and then find that your hunger cues are off the charts and start overeating for a few days. And then you start that period of low calories again and your body's like, I don't know what to expect ever. There's no rhyme or reason to this. And it's almost the same way how like when you train at the same time roughly on a daily or whatever your training schedule is basis. There's a readiness that your body anticipates. I feel like there is a readiness when it comes to just introducing regularity and consistency into the amount that you're eating into the when you're eating it your body learns what to anticipate and it can almost relax within that yeah there, there is a lack of scarcity in that yeah where like if you get a hunger pang and you have no regularity in your meal structure that hunger pang might actually be assessed as more of an emergency yeah and if you're like it's 11 i'm gonna eat at 12 it's not a big deal yeah if that was very predictable 
then it might be one where you're like, okay, it's not a big deal. But if you're like, I don't know what I'm going to eat again, or if you're forcing fasting down on your lifestyle and mm-hmm. doesn't work for you with your history, you might be like, oh my God, I don't get to eat until 2 p.m. I'm so hungry. And then say your window is from 2 to 6 or 2 to 8. Come 8 p.m. You're like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to eat until I'm 2 p.m. tomorrow. I'm going to make sure that I cap that capitalize on this as much yeah. as possible. So that's why there's such diversity in what eating strategies work best for you. And these are just a few examples of ones that tend to pan out well in the research. But again, as we mentioned before, research isn't going to tell you exactly what works for you. But if you don't know where to start, it can give you a good kind of ballpark of where to enter and then retool from there. A hundred percent. And I definitely see that with different clients just from experience across the boards that everybody lands somewhere a little bit different. But I will say one of the more potent habits and behaviors within my personal coaching practice, for sure, has been regular, consistent meals. Yeah. That is something that I've tried to impart on my clients, and they've done really well for it. I've seen a lot of success. Um, because I typically do end up working with people who have had a messy history, a complicated history with their relationship with food. And just introducing that regularity and that consistency after so many years of ignoring your hunger or eating way past fullness and undulating that pattern over and over again. There's something really powerful about introducing a sense of consistency in teaching your body that it's okay and you can relax. There's no scarcity. Yeah, 100%. Food is a abundantly available if you come from that diet culture background that is that can be a powerful habit yeah um one thing that i wanted to mention with what i've mentioned the um the habits that we've talked about so far is that they all do kind of tie in together yeah and you don't have to just choose one and again if you want to track you can also apply these strategies to to tracking yeah right so that it makes tracking a little bit easier or you're not just relying on like the macros and reducing diet down completely to macros but like an example is if you were to eat slow you could also eat slow in a regular pace right in a regular Mm -hmm. meal structure if you were to eat and you can try to comprise that meal structure up of mostly like leaner proteins and minimally processed foods and then in between meals you could add friction in between you and snacking that would also aid with regular meal structures right so there's a lot of things that would tie in here and these are just generally helpful ones but again if you want to track you can also do that too these aren't it's not an either or situation here and frankly I often do both. Like I encourage clients to do both. I don't think that just tracking and following a mathematic formulaic situation is really the most beneficial thing to all people all the time because now you're just adhering to a number and you're no longer listening to your body on any level. And even, you know, if we look at the menstrual cycle, typically women actually increase their BMR just by way of the physiology. Yeah, if you have right. Enough, yeah. So when people say, "Oh my God, I'm a little hungrier whenever I go through my cycle," I respond by saying, "That's great. Honor it. Have an extra snack. Yeah. Like learn how to honor. There are going to be some days where your body is hungrier or." less hungry than others and learning how to sort of be in flow with you know more of a range and in listening to your body and honoring those hunger and fullness cues when you set yourself up for success that's a lot easier to do and a lot of these habits are just conducive to a more successful and mindful approach to eating that translate to feeling a lot more confident around navigating food because you know after being in diet culture for so many years you lose touch with your hunger cues and you lose touch with your fullness cues like you spend a lifetime overriding the hunger cue you don't even notice it anymore right so when people say listen to your body that can often feel very confusing what does that even mean listen to your body i've been ignoring everything my body's been telling me for the past 20 years how do i listen to it again yeah and this is a great way like a lot of these practices are just a great way to start listening to your body again. Yeah. I mean, they're all generally some form of mindfulness practice. A hundred percent. Some form of like flexible restraint where you're not like being super rigid, but you're applying a flexible approach to your dietary strategies that are goal conducive. 
well, right? It's not like you have to eat at 12 every day. It's like find a range of times yeah. that are that are that work best for you. It's you know, you don't have to have each meal be 20 minutes long. It's like you're at five, let's see if we can get up to seven. Mm-hmm. Like all of these things are flexible in nature and they're portable for the most part, meaning you don't have to be in a perfect environment to implement them. Mm-hmm. The processed food one is probably if that's the least portable one when yeah. you need the most control. But the other ones you don't necessarily have to be in the perfect food environment to enact them either, which is a really helpful strategy to parents, folks that work in offices that don't have complete control over their food environment. Yeah. And the truth is any form of weight maintenance, any form of, you know, wanting to lose weight or wanting to gain weight, like all of these things require a level of cognitive restraint on some level. We have to find a way to both honor our bodies and honor our needs and our wants while also utilizing a level of cognitive restraint because you don't want to live in our food environment and just go, okay, whatever, I'm going to do whatever all the time. Like you can't be so lacking in mindfulness in living in a culture where food is truly available in an abundant way. You do have to apply a level of cognitive restraint in order to feel like your ducks are in a row on some level. Does that make sense? For sure. Okay. Is there anything else you wanted to add in terms of like strategies, implementing implementations, practices that you find are helpful with yourself and with clients in your coaching? So when it comes to eating out, as in eating at a restaurant, yeah, that can be like navigating a shit show, frankly. Totally. Um, that causes people a lot of stress, especially when they're trying to adhere to a specific macro split because often either A, restaurants will not supply <laughs> the caloric value of their food and the macros of it, or B, they'll be grossly miscalculated. Yeah. So then you're just left to guess. And the reality is I find that really stressful. I also don't want to even attempt, like, you know, you go for, let's say sushi. How are you going to track the sushi? Like, come on, it's ridiculous. Don't put me in the position where I even would try. I I can't be bothered. So, I mean, in those situations, clients will often ask me, like, how do I track this meal? And my answer is, you don't. I think the better approach is where can we make a little compromise again? Where can we compromise so that you can go out and enjoy that meal to your heart's Content, while also utilizing a balanced, mindful approach that is in alignment with a sense of cognitive restraint. One of the strategies I like is if you know that you're going for a particularly indulgent meal, a typical indulgent meal is going to be comprised of mainly carbs and fats, right? That's yeah. the magic sauce that gets us all fired up. So what can you do? How about you spend the day, let's say that's your dinner meal. Um, let's say you spend the day focusing more on getting in some protein and fiber because those are going to be the things that are lacking the most in that dinner meal. So at least you're you're not being punishing. You're just trying to balance the scales a little bit. That's the goal. Another strategy that I really like is let's say you're going for a meal that you know is specifically mostly carbs and fats. Let's say it's pizza. Pizza is a really easy one to eat because firstly, it's delicious. And secondly, it's an easier food to chew on honestly frankly it's a very enjoyable food to eat it often doesn't have a bolus of protein involved in it so what i personally like doing is okay i'm going into a meal that i know isn't going to have a lot of protein in it what if i get my protein in first by drinking a little protein shake before i even head out and the benefit of that is not by way of hitting your macros that's not the point the point is that we know that a meal that is comprised of mainly carbs and fats likely to be a little less satiating, really. Especially when it's more processed, right? Exactly. So how can we increase the satiety from this meal? We can get in some protein right before we head out the door. It's such an easy compromise to make. And it it's not, it doesn't feel like the punishing sort of energy of, oh my God, I feel so guilty. I need to make this meal fit into my day. And now I'm going to have to like, I've actually seen people bring food scales to restaurants, which I just, I'm not judging, but I don't know. Unless you're in contest prep mode, what's up? Yeah, that's a bit. It's a lot, right? Like I'm not going to weigh out pieces of sushi so that I know what I'm tracking. (laughs) I can't do that. And I don't want my clients to do that, frankly, either. Like we're not competing. This is, we're not in a sport where our weight class matters and no 
oh my God, go out and enjoy a meal. But where can you make a gentle compromise that doesn't feel punishing to you just to balance out the scales a little bit? Yeah, no, that's, that's, those are solid strategies. Those are ones that I've talked about too, um, especially if you're going to be going out for a more indulgent meal, prioritizing yeah. fibrous foods and high protein throughout the day is probably a good strategy because as Sam mentioned, going to be less um, macro friendly with the dinner, right? It's yeah. going to be typically a lot of uh, more processed carbohydrates and fats, and that's going to typically lead to less satiety so that's one thing that can also help and then i don't think i have much to add on that that's some pretty solid strategies to be honest i love them yeah i actually think they're so easy to implement and far less i don't know I psychologically frustrating so yeah if you're going out this is also something that can be helpful if you're eating out a lot and this is where like a dynamic approach of tracking non-tracking can also be helpful if you want to track the meals that you have autonomy over and you have more control over like your breakfast and your lunch so that you kind of understand understand what you're going into dinner with mm -hmm. so even if you don't track most days be like you know my weekends are a shit show because i go for dinner on friday and go for dinner yeah. on saturday you can be like i only track friday before the dinner and saturday before dinner so that i'm like i know i left a nice buffer for my dinner because it's going to be more calorie dense than my average meal yeah so you might be like okay so i'm going to track friday before dinner and saturday and i'm going to leave like a thousand calorie buffer for dinner and then just try to apply basic portion controls to dinner you're probably going to go over that's not a huge deal yeah but this this strategy will reduce the likelihood of you going over to the same degree mm -hmm. if you eat normally throughout the day and don't track and then you go in and then you eat more than you would anticipate that can put you in a larger calorie surplus than you might actually have wanted yeah. if you're trying to maintain weight this is a lot more flexible yeah if you're actively losing weight or trying to lose weight there is less flexibility yeah. to this because if you're actively losing weight you're in a negative energy balance in general throughout the entire week or month or et cetera. And that's gonna generally, as we talked about with why weight loss is harder for some than others, you're gonna have a reduction in energy expenditure to some degree because you're gonna have lower energy status. You might be more likely to be efficient at gaining body fat when you're in a weight reduced state than if you're mm -hmm. not in a weight reduced state. So context does matter there, but if you're intentionally trying to lose weight, these strategies probably play more of a role of importance if you're going out. Right now I can go out and just kind of eat whatever because I'm at a moderately high body, like a moderately normal body fat percentage yeah. for me which is higher than average for most folks and i'm ma maintaining which gives yeah. me a lot more buffer than if i were to be in a weight reduced state yeah and i will say like one of the reasons that people do enjoy the process of tracking is for a mindfulness purpose actually it's yeah. more about the mirroring of their choices right it's in some ways it can be beneficial to see it reflected back at you right yeah. because when you have a history of being so lacking in mindfulness around food sometimes tracking can be helpful just by way of being a mirror to you like you can actually see written down down on a piece of paper or on an app what choices you made that day yeah you know sure. what I mean and did it work yeah. for you did it not it's a great way of learning what works for you and what doesn't and being sort of reflective that's a great point actually yeah so it's not always this like cruel punishing behavior and for some people it can be invaluable in helping them work on their relationship with food and in teaching them what works for them and what doesn't because let's say you ate 3,000 calories today but it didn't make you feel very full and you're like okay so now I'm gonna look at the data of all all the things that I tracked, what food choices did I make? Why am I not feeling so full? And you can then pick through those food choices and see, okay, so maybe, you know, eating an entire bag of Miss Vicky's wasn't the best choice from a satiety perspective because I felt hungrier after I ate the bag than I did going yeah. into it. So I don't know. It's always about what you need, when and why. Yeah, It's a very individual approach, but there is a way to do it without jamming yourself like a square peg into a round hole. 100%. And it should never feel cruel and punishing. Fitness should not feel cruel and punishing. If, no. if you're feeling that way, I would challenge you to try to change up your approaches, enter a little bit more compassion. And if the voices you're listening to are jamming that message down your throat, I'm surprised you're also listening to our podcast. But honestly, <laughs> that would be indicative of like, hey, maybe I got to change up what I'm consuming. Yeah. Like if anybody ever sells you on the best approach, I would question why that person believes that there's only one way to make it up a mountain yeah there isn't there are still principles of science but yeah. <laughs> like the laws of thermodynamics do matter 
But within that, there's so many ways to approach this and to approach your diet and conversely your lifestyle. And I would question any habit or behavior that honestly feels punishing to you. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It should not be that way. Okay. Yeah. So just in like a very quick summary, some of the topics we talked about or some of the strategies were eating at a slower pace, right? Chew slower. You can use harder textured foods over softer textured foods and mm-hmm. less processed foods. You can also use smaller utensils or even chopsticks. That can be a, a moderately helpful strategy. Putting friction in between the way of you and mindless snacking. Mm-hmm. So prime your environment so there's not a hyper abundance of delicious and hyper palatable foods available. That's a solid strategy as well. Prioritizing minimally processed foods and lean proteins that are also or foods that are fiber that's going to be helpful too. It's going to kind of piggyback off of the other couple ones and it's going to be harder to overeat them. And then having a regular meal rhythm is something to explore as well, whether that be three meals per day, two meals, two snacks, three meals, one snack, whatever works best for you. But applying a regular meal schedule can also be very helpful too. Yeah, love that. Thanks again for listening. Um, We really appreciate your support. And as we said at the top of this episode, you can support our work and you can also sign up for online coaching if these conversations are something that you find interesting and you're like, you know what? I would love some support from coaches like these like these folks, like Sam and I. We are offering online coaching right now and using the link in the description, you can actually apply for coaching and get a free call to see if we're the right fit and if you can make it, make it work. And then also sign up for our newsletter if you want great content right to your inbox and support the show by sharing and leaving a review as that helps us tremendously. Yeah, it does. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.